Beloved, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, and verses 31 and 32. Uh, As you're turning there, uh, I do want to mention that this is uh, indeed my favorite uh, verse in the entire Bible, Romans 8, 32, so wonderfully packed with gospel truth and promise, and what a joy to be able to come to it here uh, this morning. Well, I'd ask you to please stand as I read uh, the inspired, inerrant, efficacious, and authoritative word of the living God, Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Amen. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, as we come to this familiar text, a familiar text to many, we pray, Lord, that as we delve into the depths of these two verses, that you would humble us, that you would strengthen our faith, that we would die more to ourselves and live more to Christ, that we would put our hope and our trust in you alone, O God, in your love, in your steadfast love, which has its yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Father, we love you so much because you first loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last Thursday, May 18th, Pastor Harry Lloyd Reader III left this sin-torn world and entered into his eternal rest. He now dwells in the resplendent glory of the one that he boldly proclaimed for over 50 years. Harry's death was sudden. It was totally unexpected. It didn't seem possible when I first heard the news. Just that morning, Harry had been speaking at a prayer breakfast for the Alabama State Legislature, uh, teaching them lessons on leadership. And only a couple of weeks ago, we were all together at the GRN National Conference, doing ministry, recording podcasts, and sharing meals together. And now he's gone. Suddenly, he's gone. As many of you already know, Harry was more than just a mentor and a friend to me. He was like a father. Moreover, as I shared with Cindy, his wife, this past week, he was the greatest man that I've ever known. But it was the Lord's time for him to go. In God's book, his days, as are all of our days, they are numbered. As the hymnist declares, from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands what? Our destiny. From the time we come out of the womb to the time we go in the grave, God is sovereign. He has ordained all of these things. Our lives are in the Lord's hands. We believe this. Amen? We believe this. Our lives are in the Lord's hands. But sometimes when faith and life collide, we have a hard time believing it. Sometimes life tests us. Sometimes troubles overwhelm us, and we groan. 
we join the chorus of groaning that Paul speaks of in Romans 8 in the middle section. We groan amidst the suffering and the loss that we experience in this fallen, broken world. We groan when unexpected trials rise. We groan when those we love are suddenly taken from us. But here's the thing. We do not groan with despair. We do not groan with despair. By God's grace, we groan with the hope of the gospel pulsating in our chests. It's what Paul was communicating in verses 23 and 24 of this very chapter. Look there with me. Where Paul says that we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Beloved, the trials and suffering that we endure in this life seem so heavy. The first century Christians in Rome certainly felt the weight of them. But Paul reminded them that compared to the incomparable weight of glory, the sufferings of this world are light. And it's this comparison that we are meant to live by. This, this is precisely why Paul would say at the start of this section in verse 18, if you'll look there with me, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The main point that Paul is making here in Romans chapter 8 is a deeply comforting one. And what is that main point? That God's love for his redeemed people is unshakable, indestructible, and everlasting. God's love for his redeemed children is unshakable, indestructible, and everlasting. Dear one, God's love for you is unshakable. God's love for you is indestructible. God's love for you is everlasting. And this holy and enduring love is not God's response to your good works, to my good works. It's a love which he, as we've learned, sovereignly initiates before time. It's a love which he so clearly manifests in time through the giving over of his son. And it's a love that he will show his children for all time. That is the, the essence of Romans chapter 8. Therefore, whenever trials and suffering arise in the church and perhaps have arisen in the church in Rome, they must remember and we must remember that we are truly loved by God and nobody can separate us from his love. James Montgomery Boyce, the late pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, was diagnosed, as many of you will know, uh, back in the I believe it was in the early 90s, um, he was diagnosed with uh, a terrible cancer, an aggressive cancer. And if I remember correctly, the time that he uh, was diagnosed to the time that he died was a very short one, but he wrote several hymns for the church during that time called Hymns for a Modern Reformation. And uh, one of them... uh, is called nothing, hallelujah, and it comes from Romans chapter 8. What can separate my soul from the God who made me whole, wrote my name in heaven's scroll? Nothing, 
Hallelujah. Trouble, hardship, danger, sword, brought by those who hate my Lord, slander here or no reward, nothing. Hallelujah. Angels, demons, now or then, wickedness dreamed up by men, persecutions come again, nothing. Hallelujah. Victors we are ordained to be by the God who set us free. What can therefore conquer me? Nothing. Hallelujah. We face death for God each day. What can pluck us from his way? Let God's people ever say, nothing. Hallelujah. Harry Reader is now in the presence of God and the angels. His suffering's over. His faith has turned to sight. It has impacted so many of us in this room. But through tears, we continue on the pilgrim road, and we do so by faith, and we do so in gospel hope. And this final section, beginning in verse 31, is meant to further assure us that God is with us and that he will bring us all the way home as well. And the Apostle Paul does this with what Cranfield calls, quote, words of elevated eloquence. Is there any more elevated and eloquent section of Scripture than Romans 8, 31 through 39? This may be the most exalted, moving, and inspiring section of the entire Bible. In this section, Paul introduces five rhetorical questions. What are rhetorical questions? They're questions that we are meant to ponder, but not necessarily to blurt out an answer for. They are questions that are meant to stir our hearts, to get us thinking. In this sense, to get us thinking about the magnitude and indestructibility of God's love for us. And we're going to look at three of these questions this morning. So if you're taking notes, there are three questions we're going to deal with. Roman number one, question one, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? Question two, Roman number two, if God is for us, who can be what? Against us. Number three, if God spared not his own son, how will he not give us all things? And so these three points are three questions that arise straight from the text that are meant to inspire and encourage and comfort us in this pilgrim road, in this valley in which we walk through. But look with me again at question 31. What shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? This first rhetorical question should not be uh, new to us, shouldn't be unfamiliar to us. We use it often ourselves, don't we? After receiving a nice or perhaps extravagant gift, we might respond with something like this. Wow, what can I say? What can I say? I'm at a loss for words. What can I say in response to this gift that you've given to me or this thing that you've done for me? This is essentially what the inspired Apostle Paul is expressing here in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? Now, one might ask, well, what are the things to which he is referring to? Well, he may be referring to verses 28 through 30, the verses that immediately precede these, where the Holy Spirit, through Paul, teaches that for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, all things work together together. For our good. 
And where we are taught that those whom God foreknew or foreloved, as it were, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. And where we learn that God's golden chain of salvation begins in eternity past and extends into eternity future and glory. Indeed, as it states in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. The golden chain. And so when, when Paul writes, what shall we say to these things, these glorious and awesome and sublime things that God has done and is doing and, and shall do for us, we, we see that this, this may be right, but it probably isn't. What is more likely is that he's either referring to all that has preceded these verses since verse 1 of chapter 8, or perhaps better yet, all that Paul has written from the opening verses of the letter. It's as if Paul is saying, what shall we say to these things, to these amazing things that God has done for us, we who are unworthy sinners? What shall we say in response to God's extravagant grace and mercy that has been shown to us? What shall we say in response to God's gift of righteousness through faith in Christ? What shall we say to the good news that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us? What then shall we say about the fact that we are no longer condemned but justified through faith in Jesus? What shall we say in response to the news that we have been set free from the bondage of sin and from the crushing demands of the law as a means of salvation? What shall we say to the good news that we have, Romans 5, verse 1, peace with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ? What shall we say to the fact that we were once dead in Adam, but we are now alive in Christ? What shall we say in response to the gift of the Holy Spirit and the reality of our new status as co-heirs with Christ and adopted sons of God who are privileged to cry out, Abba, Father? On and on and on we can go. Grace upon grace lavished upon us in Christ. Christ Church, what shall we say to these things? It's a rhetorical question that's meant to stir our hearts with wonder, to strengthen our oft-feeble faith, and to buttress our resolve to continue to serve the Lord. What shall we say to these things, Paul asks, to all these things that God has done for rebel sinners like us? The question reminds us of all that Paul has written in his letter to the Romans up until this point, and also it introduces all of the verses that will carry on until the end of the chapter. What shall we say to these things? That's the first question. And the second is equally encouraging, perhaps even more so. Look there with me. If God is for us, who can be against us? Some might read this and think, who can be against us? Really? Who can be against us? There are enemies to the gospel who are against us. There are 
hateful people who are against us. Satan and his demons are against us. Our own remaining indwelling sin is against us. The tide of the culture is against us. And we could go on. We have all kinds of opposition that we face. Paul has spoken of it throughout this letter and throughout his other epistles. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes that he has experienced, quote, imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." Who is against us? By the way, those who would think, boy, wouldn't it be wonderful to be one of the apostles in the early church? This was what Paul experienced. And he's the one who said, if God is for us, who can be against us? It looks like a lot can be against us. So what does Paul mean here? Well, he's not saying that Christians are free from opposition if God is on their side. No, he's saying something quite different than that. While living in Scotland, Marla and I lived a 10-minute walk from St. Giles Cathedral. Uh, That's the High Kirk of Edinburgh. And it's where the fiery reformer, John Knox, preached from 1560 to 1572. Knox has left us with several memorable quotes, but one of the best ones is this. A man with God is always in the majority. A man with God is always in the majority. In other words, no man is outmatched or outnumbered when God is with him. And here's the thing. God is with us. And it gets better. God is not only with us, but he is what? For us. He is for us. And if Or better yet, since God is for us, who can be against us? John Murray, the uh, famous mid-20th century theologian from Westminster Seminary, he put it this way, if God is for us, then all opposition is of no account. That's what Paul is saying here. If God is for us, then all opposition is of no account. Even if all the enemies of hell were to rise up against one single solitary Christian, With God on his side, he shall not ultimately be destroyed or conquered. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. And that's what this second rhetorical question is meant to teach us. And so I want to ask you, what kind of opposition are you facing right now? What kind of challenges have risen in your life? There's one thing that's true about all of us in this room Not only that we are all sinners, but that we all have challenges that we are facing. Are these challenges coming from within your own heart, or maybe they are coming from outside, from the world in some way? Here's the thing. Do not despair. If God is for us, who can be against us? And in case one might have lingering doubts about God's amazing love for us, Paul introduces a third rhetorical question in verse 32. Look there with me. 
This question exalts the love of God to its greatest heights. It, it, it highlights the lengths to which God would go to save us, a verse that reveals the extravagant nature of the Father's redeeming love. This is the third question. If God spared not his own son, how will he not give us all things? Again, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Beloved, when it comes to the gospel, we often find ourselves placing almost a total focus on the love of Christ and what he did for us on the cross. It's important, of course, to make the love of Christ central in the gospel, but, but never to the exclusion of the Father's love. That's central in this text. It's because of the Father's love for us that he sent his Son, his only Son, into the world to save us from what we deserve and to reconcile us to himself. Did you see the Father's love highlighted in verse 32? A love so great that he spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all. Who does this? Who does this? What father gives up his own son to his enemies and for his enemies? Well, the answer is in verse 32. God the Father does. He gives his own eternally begotten son in order to redeem and adopt many sons and ultimately bring them to glory. Uh, Last week, uh, when I prepared the liturgy, uh, I prepared for us, of course, to sing How Deep the Father's Love for Us, which is an apt hymn to sing as it relates to this verse. And in that hymn, of course, we sing How Deep the Father's Love for Us, How Vast Beyond All Measure, That He Should Give His Only Son To Make a Wretch His Treasure. How great the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Now, as I mentioned earlier, verse 32 is pregnant with gospel meaning. And there are several aspects of it that I want to unpack with you this morning in the remainder of our time. The first one is this that in this text are echoes of Genesis chapter 22. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. Again, here in this text, we have echoes of Genesis 22 to help to bring commentary and to teach us about what's going on in Romans 8, 32. Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. If you write in your Bibles, those are underline worthy. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering, no one of the mountains of which I shall, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. 
On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. So just a quick note, Abraham believed in the resurrection from the dead, which is why he could say, we will both come back. That they will both come back, not just Abraham. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Verse 8, which has wonderful redemptive historical connections. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order to bound Isaac and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. It was indeed on the Calvary Mount that grace was provided for us, that salvation was provided. God here in this text spared Isaac. God spared Isaac, Abraham's own son, the son whom he loved. But God spared not his own beloved son. There was no ram caught in the thicket who would be sacrificed in his place. There was no angel sent to stop the metal spikes from being driven into his hands and feet. Abraham said to his son Isaac in verse 8 that God will provide for himself the lamb. And he finally does so when he sends his son into the world to be crucified for us. He who is the spotless lamb of God a righteous substitution for the sins of his people. Beloved Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. As I was reading a text this past Wednesday during the memorial service from Revelation 7, it really stood out to me. The text which says that those who were, had their uh, white robes, they had dipped their robes into the blood of the lamb and they were white as snow. Usually when things are dipped in blood, they don't come out white as snow. But for sinners, that's what happens. 
When we, by God's grace, put our faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. All the sins that we have committed are forgiven, and we are robed in the very righteousness, righteousness of Christ. We stand before God now justified. The second thing we must see here is the indescribable gravity of God not sparing his son. As fathers, of course, it's our inclination to spare our children from harm or danger. Their safety is our utmost concern. But here in verse 32, we learn that God spared him not. God spared him not, but gave himself up for us all. In other words, God the Father, because of his great love and covenant mercy for us, did not spare Jesus of anything necessary as it pertains to our salvation. As John Murray explains, again, quote, There was no alleviation of the stroke. The father delivered over his son to the damnation and abandonment which sin merited, end quote. And so Jesus drank down to the very dregs, the foaming cup of God's wrath. Remember in Gethsemane, he said, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. That cup was representative of the foaming cup of God's wrath for sin. Jesus drank it all. He suffered the full force and weight of God's wrath and judgment as he hung on the cursed tree. God spared him not that we who are sinners would be spared. In Isaiah 53, we read that Jesus, the Messiah, God's own son, was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And later in verse 10, it states that it is the will of the Lord to crush him. That is, at the very center, dear ones, of the message of the gospel, that it was the will of God the Father to crush his own son for us, to spare him not, that we would be spared. Again, Murray writes, quote, The Father loved his people with such invincible love and purpose that he executed the full toll, the full stroke of their condemnation upon his own son. That is the Father's love. Do you stagger with amazement, he writes, Oh, let that not be the amazement of bewilderment, but may it be the amazement of believing and adoring wonder, end quote. What love the Father has shown to us. The third point of emphasis here is that God delivered him over. That God delivered him over. Again, we are shown the weightiness of the love of God. Some might think, no, it was Judas who betrayed him and delivered him over. It was the religious leaders who did this. It was Pilate who did this. It was Herod that did this. All of these people are the ones who delivered him over to be scourged and crucified. There's a sense in which, yes, these people did certainly deliver over Jesus. But we must remember that behind it all, God the Father by his redemptive, sovereign purpose and his invisible, providential hand was delivering his own son over to suffer and to die. Octavius Winslow, the 17th century Puritan, put it this way, quote, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. The Father 
for love. Peter made this point plain in his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2.23 when he declared that this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God delivered him over. And finally, we come to the last phrase, how will he not graciously give us all things? Here we have an argument from the greater to the lesser, from the greater to the lesser, and it's meant to deepen our trust and assurance of God's unshakable love and care over our lives, no matter what trials we may face. Back in 2002, uh, Marla and I uh, were meeting uh, her parents in Paris. When we arrived, it was extremely late. It was after midnight, well after midnight, and we, we hailed a taxi to the hotel. We didn't have any uh, euros on us, but we thought we'd be okay because we're living in the 21st century and you can use credit cards in the taxi cabs. Of course, that's what we thought could happen. We tried to use our credit card. His credit card machine was uh, not working properly. He was getting frustrated. He was raising his voice and saying things in French that I'm guessing weren't so pleasant. And we looked at each other like, what in the world are we going to do? And then amazingly, Marla looks over and says, there's my parents. They were walking right outside at the front of the hotel well after midnight coming home from a night out. And of course, they were able to help us with the fare. Now, when we saw him, it never entered our mind for half a second that he wouldn't help us. Of course he would help us. Of course they would help us. They loved us. They had done so much for us already that far outweighed the payment of a cab fare. It's the argument from the greater to the lesser. If they had done so much for us already, we can be sure that they would do this. That's what we have going on here in this text, beloved. If God spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? What are the all things? All things necessary to provide for us, sanctify us, and bring us to our eternal home. This is not a promise for a smooth and trial-free life, but a promise to be with us, to care for us as our Abba Father. And who are the us mentioned in this text? Not the entire universe. We don't believe in universalism. Paul is referring to those who he mentions in verse 30. Those who are by God's sovereign grace, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And so, beloved, do you see how this text is somewhat of a glorious summary and and an and exalted, elevated, eloquent uh, word about our rescue from sin, our salvation in Christ, our safety in him, his care over our lives, and the fact that he will indeed bring us home. And so as we approach the Lord's table this morning, beloved, remember this. God is for you. God is for you. If you are united to Christ by faith, God is for you. Does this not encourage you to persevere, to, to not give up, to keep going and not despair when oppositions rise? Remember, if God is for us, 
no opposition can stand against us. God spared not his own son, but delivered him over for us all. Is he therefore not worthy of our trust and our growing, grateful obedience? Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Your word is life. We thank you for what Christ has done for us on the cross. We thank you, Father, for sending him, for giving him over, for sparing him not that we might be spared, that we would be spared. And so, Lord, as we come to your table this morning to partake of the bread and the wine, to feast on Christ, oh, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be encouraged and comforted, that our faith would be nourished, and that we'd remember the depth and the length and the width and the height of the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.